You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so let's jump into Malachi chapter 4. I think um, that there are, or I believe strongly, that there are three things that Malachi would have for the people of Sojourn Montrose this morning. And the the first thing that he is encouraging us to do is to, to look ahead. Look ahead. As we, as we read, right, just in the very first little portion of a sentence in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us this, Behold, the day is coming. All right, so Malachi is telling the people of Israel that there is a time, there is a day, there is a real juncture in human history at which point something is going to happen. Now, what I don't want us to do is miss how intimately linked this is to chapter 3. And so I'm just going to take us back there for, for one moment. Now, remember what I said earlier, just kind of in the, in the introductory time, was that, was that there's kind of this ongoing conversation between the people of Israel and God all throughout Malachi, right? Right, And that, in that God will essentially say something and the people of Israel will come back with a retort or, or a misunderstanding and then, then God will respond, Right? So this is what the people of Israel say in chapter 3, verse 14, right? They say, it is vain to serve God. So this is, this is the narrative that the people of Israel are, are writing. It is vain to serve God. There is no profit to keeping his charge. The arrogant are blessed, and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is what Israel is saying, right? This is our reality. This is what is taking place in our midst. This is what we believe to be true, more true than the words, God, that you are speaking to us. But then God responds. You see, God responds in verse 18, and he says that once more, essentially in a day yet to come, once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him, right? Here's what's happening, right? The people of Israel, they're confused in that what's taking place around them seems to lead them to believe that serving the Lord is vain, that the arrogant are blessed, that the evil prosper. In fact, they don't just prosper, but they test God and they escape. And yet God promises that once more, you will see a distinction that although the lines are blurry right now, that although there seems to be some incongruence, some inconsistency, that once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And his response to that in chapter 4, verse 1 is this, Behold, the day is coming. The day is coming where we will be able to very clearly, unequivocally distinguish between those who serve God and the one who does not. So these people, right, this people that belongs to God, the people to whom God reveals himself and the people through whom God purposes to reveal himself to the world are to live their lives in light of this day that is coming right? He's calling them to look ahead. Look ahead to this day. He's saying that their present reality is to be defined by this ultimate and future reality. Behold, the day is coming. 
Now that day is characterized in, in two ways, and in two ways really that when we read them seem paradoxical in nature, right? In that there is a vastly different experience of the same event, right? This is what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, right? So again, God is responding to the charge of Israel. He's saying, no, in fact, in fact, the arrogant are not blessed. In fact, the evildoers do not prosper, but they will become stubble. Continue reading. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And here's where this shift happens. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And here we see the dichotomy brought to full picture in one verse, verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So this day, this day that is coming, this day that will rectify, this day that will, that will essentially make very clear who it is that serves the Lord and who it is that does not, is characterized in two ways. The first being judgment and destruction, right? In that the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. That day will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. And it tells them that this group of people, this group of wicked people will be like ash trodden under the feet of the people of God. But this self-same event, right? This self-same day, this self-same coming of the Lord will also result in a people for whom healing and joy are what characterize that day. In that verse 2 tells us that the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The same event will bring about vastly different experiences. Now, I think for all of us, this is probably an uncomfortable text, right? And that much of sort of modern Christian preaching um, is fairly devoid of the idea of judgment, the idea of, of separation eternally from God, right? All of those things that kind of make us cringe. And I think, I think a lot of that ultimately is an overreaction uh, to maybe some of the preaching that, that preceded us, right? That maybe was overly focused on that and less, less proclaiming the excellencies of the glories of God's grace. And yet those two must stand next to each other in order for each of them to be magnified. And so what, what God is telling them to look forward to is something that I think ultimately probably terrifies us a little bit, especially if we're in any way honest about the condition of our own souls, right? And that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, there's probably ample reason for God's justice if he, if he were just towards us, if he acted righteously towards us. He would be utterly right, completely unassailable, unimpeachable to bring nothing but judgment to us. And yet, there's some reality at play, right? There's some reality at play in which this event actually does not lead to the destruction that it so terrifyingly proclaims, but it actually leads to healing. 
that it actually leads to joy, like a, a calf leaping from its stall, a young animal that's been set free to roam and wander as he pleases. So why is it, right? Why is it that, that God, through Malachi, is telling this people, right, who, if we look at any of their, their recent record, even just in the book of Malachi, should have every reason to fear this day. Why would God say to them, look ahead? Well, I think there's a couple, I think there's a couple reasons. Three, really. First is this. First, it reminds the people of Israel of their purpose, their, their whole reason for being. The reason that they exist as a people is because they are God's people. We've said this time and time again, right? God's people, both to whom he would reveal himself, but also through whom he would reveal himself. Secondly, it gives them the sure promise of the prophets, right? And that here's the thing. Right, the Bible so many times is, is called out sort of for its perceived inconsistency, generally by people who haven't read it. So take it for, for what, it, what it's worth. But really, the, the, the consistency of the narrative of the Bible, the consistency of the faithfulness of God in spite of the unfaithfulness of man is really what the Old Testament is all about. So all of the discomfort, all of the evil, all of the, all of the wickedness, all of the brokenness that's very clear, very evident throughout the Old Testament is ultimately and always met with this same proclamation, which, which you can find in any number of books, but my favorite is from Habakkuk when Habakkuk says this. Nobody knows where that book is, right? But in the book of Habakkuk, another prophet, he says this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so God is reminding them, look, you've heard this, not just from me, not just from Malachi, not just from Habakkuk, not just from, but the entire testimony of the people of Israel has been consistently ad nauseum. You are my people. You belong to me. You have been unfaithful to me. And yet I will be faithful to you. It is a sure promise. And then third and finally, it reminds them of this, that evil's day is limited that there is a finitude or a limit to the existence of evil in our midst, that there will come a day upon which evil will be utterly removed from us as though it never even existed. Here's the thing, right? We tend to look at this with some, I think, appropriate, reverent trepidation. But I think we can also look to this with a sense of joy, with a sense of hopefulness, right? And I don't mean hopefulness in the sense of like, oh, I hope Bobby asked me out, right? I mean, I mean hopefulness in, in the biblical definition of hope, which calls hope a steadfast anchor for the soul, something that grounds us, right? Which is altogether appropriate if you recall that we've titled this series, The Danger of Mission Drift. And that you have a people who are drifting. They are at sea. Their experiences, their feelings, all of those things are telling them, telling them that something else is true other than God's continued, ongoing, righteous faithfulness to an unfaithful people. 
So we look ahead. Second thing that we're called to do, I think, in Malachi chapter 4 is to look back. And that verse 4 says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. So if the first thing we see is that there is a day that is coming, which is a reference point for the people of God, what we see here is that there is also a day that has passed that is a reference point for the people of God. They are to remember the law of Moses. That as they look to the great coming day of the Lord, God through Malachi calls them to remember the giving of the law. Why does he do that? If nothing else, what we've seen, right, if you've read any, any measure of the Old Testament, what you've seen is that really the, the law is, is kind of a heavy burden on the people of Israel in that they fail time and time again to accomplish its demands. So why? I think first, God is reminding them, right, that for a drifting people, remembering leads to returning. We talked about that in, in week one, right? to remember that God says, first, I have loved you. Then he says, remember the law. But then second, I think he's acknowledging a, a, a reality that I think is true regardless of, of what we believe, which is this. All that we do in our lives flows out of what we remember and what we believe, right? Right? So God through Malachi is saying, you have begun, right? You have drifted into a place in which you no longer believe what I have said to you is true. Return to that. Because when you, when you take that in and you actually believe it, you will begin to live from it. And I think there's, there's uh, some tension here, right? In that maybe... Uh, it might be the most, the most uh, often leveraged complaint against the church, which is that you, you, we say we believe one thing, but then we act differently, right? Hi hypocrisy is what, what people would call that. And so when I say a sentence like that, right, all that we do in our lives flows out of what we remember and believe, Many of us would say, well, wait, wait a minute. There are things that I believe, and then there are areas of, of my life that, that don't line up with that, if we're honest, right? I, I know I can say that in a multitude of areas. And yet my contention would be this, right? That we have, we have what's called a theological belief or a theological understanding, right? Something that we believe in theory, and yet in practice, we have other beliefs from which we live. Those are called functional beliefs because that's what we actually operate from, right? And the journey of the Christian life ultimately is this. It's turning our theological beliefs into functional beliefs, beliefs that we actually live from, right? So it's not only believing that, that God has been generous to us in his son Jesus, but that through that generosity, we are now liberated from the bondage of slavery to things and belongings so much so that we're actually able to be generous with others. That we not only believe that God in Christ welcomes us as the sojourner, but we actually welcome the sojourner into our home, into our presence. But here's the problem particularly in Malachi, right? 
the law doesn't have the power to change their hearts. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, we see that. It doesn't have, they know the law. They know it. They know it frontwards and back. Look, it, it's not even a matter of like, should we go back and check the slabs, right? It's not. It's like, it's an oral culture. Most people can't read. So you know what that means? They have it memorized. They know the law. And yet still, time and time again, we find them unfaithful to it. The law does not have the power to change their hearts. It just points out what needs to be changed. To use last week's imagery, right? It told us about this messenger that would come and that, that he was characterized as a, as a refiner or like a fuller, right? Someone who purifies objects, things. Well, think of it this way, right? The law... The law is the means by which the impurity in the gold is discerned or discovered. But the gold still needs a refiner. The gold still needs the heat of the flame to refine it. Just briefly, Hebrews 7.19 reads like this, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. But we'll get to that. So the law is beautiful, but ultimately powerless. So why is it that it's being recalled for us here? Right again, we may be able to white knuckle it for a season. And even if we succeeded for a lengthier period than we even anticipated, if we're honest, it didn't change. Our, our behaviors didn't change because our desires changed. And that's ultimately what we need, right? Right? Let me give you an example from a book that probably all of you were forced to read. <laughs> Homer's, Homer's great epic, right? The, uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Reverse those two. There's a, the, the main character, right? Odysseus. There's a, essentially a, a, an instance in, in this great epic journey in which they, they know that they're going to pass by this island, right? And it's an island that... Um, is filled with sort of these, these beautiful creatures that, that sing with such beauty that um, if you were sort of lured into a space in which you could actually hear that, then, then you would essentially be unable to withstand the draw, right? And it was sort of one of these things where like, uh, this has led many to their destruction, many to, to leave sort of their, their previous objective and to be caught amongst this place. And so they know that they're going to pass this island, and this is what Odysseus said, right? He says, bind me up, right? Tie me up so that we might not go to the island of the sirens. And so here's what happens, right? They, they make it through, and Odysseus is tied up on the front of the boat. The ropes kept him back, but they didn't change his desires. Much similarly for us, the law can warn us. The law serves us a great purpose in telling us, reminding us not only who God is, but what he has called us to do, who he has called, to be for the, called us to be for the sake of his name. But it can't change our desires. So what's the solution, right? Verses five and six say this. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God, God is calling them to look ahead. He's calling them to look back. And by God's grace, right, we've said this, I think, throughout the series. I think I've said it every week. We're privileged, right? We're privileged in that we stand in a, in a particular time in history where, where looking back for us not, not only includes this, but that it actually includes the, the testimony of, of the New Testament, all those books written after Jesus came, right? And so when Malachi says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, something that should be confusing for us because Elijah's long dead at this point, we begin to realize that he's actually speaking about, about John the Baptist. That Elijah, the prophet Elijah, is a foreshadow of John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus, who does what? Who restores us to God and to one another by his life, death, and resurrection. And we'll talk about that in just a minute, but I, I, I want you to, I, I want to take you on just a, a brief little side journey um, so that you know that I'm not just making stuff up for a good sermon. <laughs> In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, there's an angel of the Lord that comes and prophesies to the parents of John the Baptist. They're telling it, much like when the angel of the Lord appeared to, to Mary, right, and told her that she was going to have Jesus. A very similar event in Luke chapter 1, 17, this angel of the Lord says this about John the Baptist. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Sound familiar? and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And, you know, if you're sketched out by the whole angel of the Lord vision type thing, we can just go to what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, verse 14, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So straight from the horse's mouth. There we go. Um, cool. We can move on. <clears throat> so he will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And what will happen? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here's the thing. This messenger, these two messengers that we saw in uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, starts to become a whole lot more clear, doesn't it? In chapter 3, verse 1, when God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's talking about Jesus. And when Jesus and John the Baptist come, the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This messenger of the covenant comes to bring restoration. How does he do that? Well, there's a clue in that last half of verse six when it says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, here's, here's the thing. If you have an ESV Bible, there's probably a little, you know, tiny little letter right there, which is a footnote. You should read those. They're helpful. 
But I'm gonna read the footnote straight from there. It says, the Hebrew term rendered decree of utter destruction refers to things devoted or set apart to the Lord for destruction. And if we know the story of Jesus, then we can know this, that Jesus is the land set apart for destruction. That on the cross, he bears the wrath of God fully and that through bearing that wrath, he actually makes restoration possible, not only between us and God, but between us and one another. So in Christ, even though these are the last words of the Old Testament, written 400 years before Jesus Christ ever steps onto the scene, the last, the last prophet, the last writing of God's word for the people of Israel for 400 years, you and I get to look back and say, 400 years later, God was faithful because he sent his son. And he sent his son as one set apart for destruction, even though he had no reason for which he should have been destroyed. So in Christ, a great day has come, and yet the great day is still to come, right? And that there's still the sense that you and I probably share some uh, impatience or some discomfort or some distrust with God. Because look, Jesus has come, and there's still evil all around us. We've had plenty of examples the past couple of weeks. Whether it's Paris, whether it's Mali, whether it's Beirut, whether it's the sex trafficking taking place probably on your block. And it's into that tension that God is calling us to look ahead and to look back. Because when we look ahead, we know what God has promised to us. And that is a day where all things will be made right. And when we look behind, we can see that what God decrees comes to pass. So when God says he's going to do something, he does it without question. So the great day has come and there's still yet a sense in which the great day is yet to come. Because there is that great day when Christ will return for his people, this people that have been prepared. There is a great day when the globe will be comprised of what? His church. Where the new heavens and the new earth will actually descend upon us and we will live in the very presence of God. And when that takes place, we make no mistake, there is no room in the presence of God in the temple of the Lord for iniquity, for evil. Those things will be removed. They'll be gone that great day when all righteousness is rewarded in the grace of God because all of that righteousness is according to the works of Jesus and not our own. And when all wickedness will be trod underfoot of the victor, King Jesus. The great day when justice will be meted out righteously, when every evil deed, mine included, will either be paid for in the blood of Christ Jesus or judged according to the absence of Christ. So what's the call for us today, right? We look ahead, we look back, 
and we live today. And here's what I mean by that. We actually live out tomorrow today. We live out the promises of God that are yet to come. We live those today. That is the invitation of Malachi chapter four. We're actually being invited by God himself to live today in light of the great day that is to come. This is what Israel was always meant to do. And this is what Christ's blood-bought church is purposed to do. That as we grow in obedience to the Lord, as we grow in holiness, as we become more like his son Jesus, we actually become a foretaste of this place in which justice reigns, in which mercy is extended freely, in which grace is given without cost. We are a colony, an outpost that Jesus will come to claim and he will make the entire earth to be like it. So what does that mean for us, right, at Sojourn? We called this the danger of mission drift and oddly enough, we haven't talked at all about Sojourn's mission and vision, right? And I think the reason that we haven't done that yet is because I think Malachi would say that we can execute our philosophy of ministry with excellence and still have mission drift. And that the people of God are still making offerings to God. They're still striving sort of to abide, at least at times or in ways that they deem appropriate with some compromises here and there. But, you know, overall, 50-50. But the first thing and the last thing that Malachi and and by extension, God would have us to do or would say to us is remember. Remember what God has done and look forward with confidence to what he will do and let that remembering transform the mundane into an understanding that all of what we do together, brothers and sisters here at Sojourn, is fueling a purpose that goes way far and above and beyond your best life now in that God has a global purpose for his people because the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's gonna happen. How's it gonna happen? It's gonna happen through his people, this people who he has bought and reconciled through the precious blood of his very own son who came in complete and utter righteousness, worthy of no judgment, and yet bore yours for you. So when we say we, we want to make disciples, right, that being sort of pillar one of our vision, we want to make disciples, what are we actually saying, right? We're not just saying we want to add a, a, a tally in a column, right, so that it makes us feel good um, or so that we can say, see, God, look, you, you owe us this. What we're actually saying when we're saying we want to make disciples is that we want to prepare people for life in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And that's the, this is where we have holiness and, and the view of obedience to God all wrong. So we look at it as this begrudging, like just trod through life where it's just hard and everything kind of is terrible. And yet, look, if, if obedience to God is uncomfortable for you now, like glory is going to be miserable for you. Because there's going to be nothing but perfect 
unfettered obedience to God in glory. We will no longer wage war against the curse of sin and death. We will stand freed, freed, liberated to do what? To live the way that God has always intended that we should live in peace and harmony and justice and righteousness and glory. That's what we're preparing people for. Both those of us who are Christians in the room, we've been Christians for a long time. There's still areas, nooks and crannies of your life that you do not believe God is who he says he is, that you are not walking in obedience to God. And you know what? We're, by God's grace, we're gonna see that reconciled in this journey of sanctification together as we prepare for the new heavens and the new earth. And for those that don't know Jesus in our midst, look, it's the same thing. Why are we warning them? Why are we having this conversation, this uncomfortable conversation about judgment and death and destruction and all this other stuff? Look, it's not just, well, we really want to make people feel uncomfortable or we really just kind of hope that people will not like us. That's what everybody wants, right? Like, no, it's none of those things, but we're trying to prepare them for life in the new heaven and the new earth and that this is a reality that is coming to pass. And look, there is a way that God has made for you. Note, one, a way, not many, right? And we want, like, we've been shown it by grace. And so we extend it to you in the same way. What are we saying when we say we want to multiply parishes, right? These little miniature expressions of the church as family. Again, it's not just so that we have these neat groups where we hang out according to our affinity, right? Because you're young like I'm young. You're in the same tax bracket. You have the same amount of kids. You essentially uh, live life in the same realm that I do. We like the same music. We're the same color, right? All of those things. No, what we're saying is that we're recognizing that in Christ, these miniature gospel families dwell in such a unity that even now we get to taste a, just a small little foretaste of what it will look like to dwell together in perfect unity. And that, you know what? Look, the church in heaven is going to be a whole lot more brown than white. This is not a uniquely religious American South experience that what God is doing is global in scope and we're playing our part here in Houston. And when we say we want to plant churches, what are we actually saying? Right, our mission statement is this, joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption, we hope to make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches. And in planting churches, we're actually doing that. We're joining God's historic work of redemption to ensure that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters covers the sea through his people, the church, not simply to make the name of sojourn great or to create jobs for people who don't know what else to do. We plant churches because God has always intended to have a people to himself, a people both to whom he reveals himself and through whom he reveals himself to the world. That's why we make disciples. That's why we multiply parishes. That's why we plant churches. We are preparing for the new heavens and the new earth. We are daily claiming more space that belongs to God already and to whom he purposes to make his name known through our witness, through our faithfulness to God in the message of his faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. So don't miss it. There's a great warning. There's great urgency. Judgment is coming. God has made a wonderful, free, perfect, life-giving way for us through his son, Jesus. And it's in this reality 
that we have hope for the future as a people who will never be eradicated because we are preserved by God's own power and we have security in tumultuous times because all will be made right, be made right um, by a just God. Right? That's what 1 Peter tells us. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're being called by Malachi to remember that even if even if this whole make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, sojourn, woo-ha thing goes horribly wrong. Even if we get into a new space that we can't afford and this whole thing blows up in our face. God will have a people to himself. A people to whom and through whom he will reveal himself. And by God's grace through the work of Jesus, the power of the spirit working in your life, that will be true of your life in the context of his people, the church whether that's at Sojourn, whether that's at Houston's First Baptist, whether that's at wherever, whatever you want to call it, 30,000 years from now, should he tarry. And so this morning as we approach the communion table, I want us to be reminded of Jesus' good work on our behalf. Let's pray.